Turn to 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians 13. We come back to this great chapter in the Bible on love. And as we come back, we come back with a very clear reminder. And that is that the the passage of Scripture that's laid before us is something that's higher than brotherly love. It is higher than romantic love. What's laid before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is God's love. It is a self-giving love that seeks first the good of the recipients. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 tells us that God's love through Christ has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that is what empowers us to live out lovingly towards others. shouldn't surprise you then that 1 Corinthians 13 is written to a particular church. So God's word to that church is to to tell them to take that love which has been poured into them and reflect it in the body of Christ, which is an excellent word for us as well. I'm going to read all of chapter 13, beginning the last verse of chapter 12. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Our text will focus this morning on verses 8 through 13. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need the help of your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would open your word to us, your people. Give your people the ears that they might hear what your spirit says to the church. And Father, I also pray that you would be willing to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way, the beautiful way, to the love which is offered to us in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Song lyrics, books, movies. They all tell us of a romantic love that will last forever. I'm a country music fan. The late 1980s, Randy Travis sings a song, I'm going to love you forever and ever, forever and ever. Amen. If you've seen the movie The Princess Bride, you may also remember the clueless, pale clergyman who officiates the ceremony between Buttercup and Prince 
Humperdinck. And toward the end of this long homily, the impressive clergyman says, and love, true love, will follow you forever and ever, so treasure your love. I learned in seminary not to begin with jokes because everything else is downhill. (laughs) If you've never seen the movie, here's all you need to know. We recognize in that movie that that is really not true love, and because it's not true love, it really doesn't have a chance of lasting forever. But that particular love of the marriage that is impending is held up against a kind of other romantic love which really could potentially last forever. And yet as rich and wonderful as romantic love, it cannot ever transcend this life. And so the Bible says that there is a love that lasts forever, and that's what's on display in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, why does this kind of love last forever? It lasts forever because it emanates from the Father. And it is poured onto unworthy sinners like us. It is poured into your heart through Jesus Christ. Not only does this love last forever, it is also a love to be shared among all sincere believers. And so the last portion of our text tells us that this is the precise kind of love that you and I possess now. And this love will grow throughout eternity as we learn to love the Lord God in response to the love He's given us. Now if you've ever at any point grieved the fact that you do not love God as you ought to love Him. If you've ever felt burdened over the fact that God's love for you is at some level answered with unfaithfulness. This passage that is before us is really deeply comforting. Because here we learn that love grows throughout eternity. And so, says the Lord, invest your heart Secondly, look for sight. Thirdly, seek to grow. Let's start with a call to invest your heart. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, preached a sermon in 1738. And it was drawn from these two verses. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now the sermon was titled, Heaven is a World of Love. And I will draw some ideas from that particular sermon in our first point. Now Edwards, like a lot of other pastors and scholars before him, recognizes that Paul's words are meant, in a sense, to draw a line between the world in which we live today and the world of eternity, which is being offered to us in Christ. And so verse 8 and verse 13 tell us the same substantive thing. And they act like a bracket to hold this idea together. Love never ends. And so this concept of an everlasting love is held forth to us. Other spiritual gifts, even the fruits of the Spirit, will in heavenly places pass away. Really? Yes, yes, because when I... Come in the kingdom of heaven, and I am face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. I will no longer need a spiritual gift of knowledge because I will see him and know him. 
I will no longer need a spiritual gift of prophecy. I will need no one else to tell me about this God. I will need no one to speak in a language that can be understood by the whole world because everyone who knows Christ will know Him fully. And this is something we can hardly even comprehend. But likewise, the fruits of the Spirit, those things that you know from the book of Galatians, they will pass away as well. In heavenly places, when I'm face to face with the Lord Jesus, I will no longer need patience. For nothing in heavenly places would push against my patience. I will no longer need to exercise kindness. For there is nothing unkind in the presence of God. And I will no longer need faithfulness anymore as a spiritual exercise because I will fully comprehend and live out a faithfulness that today I do not even know. And I will be perfectly faithful to my Lord. In fact, the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are swallowed up in what Edwards calls a world of love. I I turn on the radio in my car and there is a man who comes on and he tells me that market conditions are so volatile that now is a good time for me to invest a portion of my portfolio into gold. I wonder if I can believe him. I mean, he's selling gold. Moreover, you go and you talk to the wisest investors in our day and age, and and they tell you that there is a looming problem of inflation. It's coming, and they can see it. And these people are striving to read the market and, and to try to help you predict how to diversify so that you can hedge your risks. And yet nobody can tell me exactly where to dump all of my assets. They can't tell me how to, how to ride out the next three years or five years or ten years in a way that would be utterly and completely safe and also maximize growth. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 through 10 does not speak of financial markets, but it speaks of heavenly markets. And it tells us of this one commodity, the one investment that will last into eternity and it will never come to an end. So what the Bible does in chapter 13 is telling us about a world in which we can hardly even comprehend. And yet the Bible says it is so. Like the ultimate insider tip, an instruction on where to invest your heart. And it tells you precisely what the market conditions are going to be. And God says in a passage that is before us, go all in on this one, on love. Not on your own spiritual gifts. Don't go all in on trying to look pious. Instead, go all in on shifting your heart towards love. Because the perfect comes and the partial passes away. So why does God call you right now to invest your heart in this quality of love? Well, there's at least three reasons. The first is that love always has the recipient in mind. The second reason is timing. And the third reason is to in, is this return on investment. So let me start with this idea that, that love always has the recipient in mind. It is possible to, to seek to use your spiritual gifts in ways that simply make you feel good. 
in ways that make you feel useful, make yourself feel powerful. In college, I knew a young man who was fond of telling others that he had the spiritual gift of prophecy. Somewhere along the way, he'd taken a spiritual gifts test, and unfortunately for everyone who encountered him, he was fond of using his spiritual gift. At some level, it wasn't all bad. He didn't actually think he could predict the future, but he did think that he had the capacity to tell you what he thought you needed to hear. Problem is that every time Dan used this gift, those who received his gift were not nearly as blessed as he thought they might be. I don't have a clue whether Dan really had a gift or not. But based on the carnage that his words often left, I'm fairly certain that he did not always have the recipient in mind. Now you've seen this too. In the exercise of many wonderful and valuable gifts to the church, it can be easy to seek to use your gift without an interest in how it is received by those who might have it. The Bible says that when you invest your heart in love, you cannot help but consider first and foremost how that loving action is going to be received. And moreover, you learn to love not out of fear of failure or hope that you get accepted, but rather with a sincere desire for the good of the other person. The second reason to invest in love right now is an issue of timing. Uh, Imagine that you live in the first century and you've got a gift of knowledge. The Lord himself has endowed you with this capacity to understand deep spiritual truths. But now what you have to do is figure out when and how to reveal that knowledge in ways that would be helpful. Not in ways that would point to you as the one who's so wise and wonderful, but in ways that could actually be delivered in timely ways. But all the gifts are really this way. And it's self-evident, really, because nobody wants me at a dinner party to stand up and start preaching. That's been a failure every time I've tried it. Moreover, when my family's having people over to our house, nobody in the family wants me to stop and speak on the ministry of hospitality. Let's just work together. So you recognize, don't you, that there is a temptation of timing and the appropriate timing and the delivery of a spiritual gift is always a little bit tenuous. But love, says Paul, is always timely. And so your willingness to exude love, your willingness to invest in an unselfish habit toward another person is never in poor timing. The third reason to invest in love right now is this return on investment. Verse 8, love never ends. Verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so when you invest your heart and your mind in a deliberate pursuit of love for others, you are investing in in all sincerity in the one quality that will pass with you from this life to the next. One writer said that, that, that love is like a down payment in eternity. Not that you could buy your salvation but rather that when you invest love, you are investing in a currency that's also useful in the eternal kingdom. Whatever other gifts do you have? 
that will be useful in the next life. And yet many of us are investing in gifts that really cannot last. Even when we invest in good spiritual things like a personal discipline, it doesn't transcend this life. Love grows through eternity. That's why God calls you to invest your heart toward love even now. Secondly, our passage teaches us to look for sight. And so verse 11 is really illustrating the partial versus the complete. And so the illustration says, you and I use our spiritual gifts right now. That's actually fine. This is the time to use our spiritual gifts. But as we mature in true spirituality, we learn to utilize the love in the giving of those gifts. He says, when I was a child, I I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish Ways. Now, the, the concept of maturity is really an analogy. And it's meant to teach us that love acts in improving ways even in this life. I think I got the idea originally from a television show. I was six years old, and I had seen two people jump and grab onto a chandelier and swing across it. And so... There I was standing on the coffee table. Nobody was around. And I'm thinking like a child and I'm reasoning like a child. Okay, I'm going to jump. I'm going to grab the chandelier. I'm going to swing on it. I'm going to let go and just land on the ground. Three, two, one, jump. And here I am standing on the ground holding the chandelier in my hand. So it is that what seemed perfectly reasonable to my six-year-old brain had ripped the chandelier from the ceiling. Now, Dad was really gracious that day, and he taught me how to install a chandelier. (laughs) But you see, that's what childish reasoning gets you. It gets you damage, and it gets you this sudden awareness that you're really far from knowing what you need to know. And that's the silly kind of childish reasoning that was on display at the church in Corinth. Paul says some of you have been thinking and reasoning about spiritual progress in childish ways. What if you were instead to begin with a concept of sight? A sight that begins to look not at your own spirituality, but through a lens of eternity. Who I will be one day. Isn't it time, he says, to begin to think in manner in a manner that elevates love as the lens through which you should view everything else. Which is why the Apostle uses language to indicate a very deliberate need to grow. Now, in any given church, there's at least two types of immaturity. So, listen carefully. What I'm describing is going to sound to your ears like I'm talking about somebody else. So, let's for a moment pretend like we're just talking about somebody else. First is the immaturity of infancy. And the others who are immature in the church are those who have not yet come to grow. They're still new believers in Christ. They've recently tasted the Lord Jesus. They're still striving to learn more about the good news of His gospel. And it is super easy for for you and me to be patient with somebody who is in the process of, of growing. Of course, they don't know any better. Let's just help them understand. The other kind of immaturity is a kind of immaturity that comes from being stunted in your spiritual growth. There are people 
in any given church who have been mistreated by the very people who should have loved and cared for them. And so in many cases, their spiritual growth is repeatedly stunted by the memories of these emotional, spiritual, physical abuse. And the person will often view their own life through that lens, which makes being loved a kind of risky endeavor. Fellowship in the body of Christ feels a little too close and possibly uncomfortable. And as you move towards that person, you may find that they are easily hurt or offended. Well, what do you do? The Bible says as God's people, you should be ready to extend love to them as you, just as ready to extend it to them as you would to the spiritual infant. And it may be harder to do that. And yet it is a calling for each of God's people to deal with those who are immature because they're young or immature because of stunted growth in a manner that, that, that reflects the tenderness of God in Christ towards us. Now, why is that the case? I told you there were two types of immaturity, but Paul says there's a third. And the third immaturity is, is true of every single person in this room. And that is this. No one in this room has arrived at a place of being spiritually mature. Everyone in the room is immature when you compare it to the days that are coming. When you compare it to the days of full sight, your love is not yet perfect. I wonder if you recognize any places in your own heart where your love is still immature. Where you expect people to love you in ways that are actions, but you'll just give love back in a kind of feeling. Or perhaps you could only love someone who could fawn all over you and really think you're great. Or perhaps you would only love someone if they were a benefit to you. And so when you see those kinds of immature expressions of love in your own heart, are you content to stay in a place of immaturity? Paul says we cannot be content to stay there. We want to move towards a mature love, which was outlined in verses 4 through 7. And so verse 11 is a summons. Do not be content to remain in immaturity as it pertains to love. In the same way, I don't want any of those faculties of reason that had me standing on a coffee table, jumping to grab a chandelier. I don't want to stay in a place of lovingly being immature of not being able to grow and and see how love develops. And here's the motivation. The reason to deal with this now. One day you will see and know how fully you've been loved. And that will fix it all. Paul says the, the eternal motivation is the motivation that you need even today. Look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Just as it is with seeing, so it is with knowing. Corinth was known for its bronze. And the bronze in that city of the ancient world was often used to make mirrors. You would polish the bronze to a high sheen, and somehow you could stand in front of it and begin to get a glimpse of your reflection. But no matter how good that reflection was, it was always at some level incomplete. 
Paul says that's the way it is for us today. You can't see God fully. One day you will. Today you don't know God fully. One day you will. And yet if you're honest, this text is terrifying. Did you read it? Even now you are fully known by God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Fully known by God. Naked and unashamed. In their creation design, they are pure and they are righteous. And they sinned against God and suddenly their nakedness becomes their biggest concern. For they feel exposed. And they begin to sew fig leaves together to try to cover over their nakedness. Now why was that different? I mean, they were naked before they sinned against God. They're naked after they sin against God. In Genesis chapter 3, one pastor made the point that nakedness means to be known. To be opened up to the point of being vulnerable before God. Something terrifying about knowing that you're guilty. And then also being known. Imagine that a movie screen was dropped from the ceiling right here. And all of your thoughts and all of your attitudes and all of your actions from this last week were put on display. The thought is terrifying. Because I would be known. But deep down what all of us fear is that in being known we would be utterly and completely rejected. Paul says you do not have to be terrified. For those who are in Christ by faith, God fully knows you right now. And in spite of what he knows, he loves you perfectly right now. One day you will know Him fully and what you know will transform your heart from the weak state of love towards God to a full and beautiful response to the love that He has for you even now. 1 John 3, 2 Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when we know that, he, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. How would you reflect God's love today if you just simply had a glimpse of eternity? The Bible gives you this glimpse. And it calls you to maturity in love. Paul says, look with sight. Look beyond the present world and see with these eternal lenses and love accordingly. Which is why I say that love grows throughout eternity. That's why God calls you to invest your heart and look for sight. Which is simply the capacity to see your present view in light of eternity. And then finally he says expect to grow. Now I mentioned that verses 8 and 13 serve like a bracket. And they billboard the fact that God's love never ends. Look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, in what way is love the greatest? How is it superior to faith and hope? The answer is found in verse 8. Love never ends. But let's be really clear. Faith, hope, and love are all essential in your walk with Christ today. In the same way that every single ingredient in a loaf of bread is essential. You've got to have yeast. You've got to have water. You've got to have flour. You've got to have salt. If you take one of those away, it is not good bread. 
one pastor pointed out that in 1 Corinthians, faith is a spirit-given trust in God's person and work, especially as revealed in Jesus. And so if you take away faith out of the Bible, then you lose the object of love. Namely, you lose the object of pointing to God toward Him and directing that love toward Him. That's actually precisely what's happening in our own day. And that is that the world outside tells us that love is a blanket. It's just got to be cast over everybody and everything. The Bible says love is an arrow. And you cannot define love without the object. God defines love as that which flows from Him and is directed toward you. And he anticipates, rightly, that his love demands a response. His love offered to sinners. And your love to his, your response to his love to those also in Christ is essential. You see, without faith, love has no object. In the same way, if you take hope out of the equation, you end up with a love that actually has no capacity to persevere. Hope is essential that by faith you continue to believe God's promises even when you can't fully see that they are coming. So it's not a matter of faith, hope, and love. These are good things. But love's really the only one that matters. Instead, faith, hope, and love are necessary for this life. And each one of those must be growing in equal and consistent measures. So how is love the greatest of these? Because faith and hope only grow in this life. Love, says God, is the one that grows in this life and even more in the life to come. You're here with me worshiping today because we're waiting on the coming of the Lord Jesus. And today you hang on with faith and hope and love. But a day is coming when you will see the Lord Jesus face to face. And then you will finally comprehend the way that God has loved you long ago and forevermore. Through Christ. Perfectly. Here's how Edwards described this. In the presence of God, you and I will understand that God is the cause for why love even exists in all the universe. And He is the fountain from which all love flows. And when you see this God face to face for the first time, you personally will forever be lovely. We are not lovely today. When you see God face to face, there will be no more pollution. In heaven, love reigns in every single heart. And Edwards goes on to explain that in heavenly places, this perfect love is also perfectly pure. Whereas today, our love is mixed with carnal and fleshly thoughts. When you see God face to face, you're going to capture the absolute, infinite, divine perfection of love. And you'll go, ah, it makes sense. 
Edwards concludes the sermon on this chapter with these profound comforts. In heaven, there is no such thing as unrequited love. Love is mutual. And it is never interrupted by jealousy. And it has nothing to hinder its progress. Nothing to keep it at a distance. In other words, you will eternally receive and eternally give godly expressions of love. If you've ever grieved that you don't really love God all that much as you ought to love Him, that you don't love Jesus as much as you should, you don't love His Holy Spirit, if you've ever, ever felt burdened that God's love for you is not answered as faithfully in you as you know it should be answered, your love for others is somehow lacking. God says, take heart. You belong to Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work in you today so that the measure of love with which you love God and others is the least today that it will ever be for the rest of eternity. Because I love you, God says. You can invest your heart. Because I love you, God says, you can look for sight. Because I love you, God says, you can expect to grow. Love grows throughout eternity. Let's pray.